Hello and welcome to the News Pace Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Vedmore, and I'm here with someone who I uh, enjoy talking to all the time. Uh, John Kleisek uh, is a college teacher, a researcher, a writer. He's uh, been a contributor to loads of different independent media platforms like New Politics, Unlimited Hangout, Op-Ed News, Dissident Voice, and many others. Uh, He's a published author. So he has a book called School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education, which is published on Trine Day Books. Um, uh, But not only that, he can kick your ass because he's also a certified kickboxing instructor. Uh, You can find him at www.schoolworldorder.info and on Twitter at Professor Taoist. Um, But some of his enthralling work, for me at least, uh, it focuses on eugenics, transhumanism, uh, and uh, the brave new world order, uh, which is approaching us like a runaway juggernaut. Um, One thing I can definitely add on a personal note, like I say, we've talked plenty of times off camera, never talked on camera, um, but we've put in the hours of having conversations over the past year. And one thing I can add to his bio is his character, nature, and morals are impeccable. He's a very good man. Um, And if you haven't already been introduced to his work, well, he is brilliant. So, Klezek, John Klezek, please welcome to Newspace Podcast. Really happy to have you here. Very happy to be here, Johnny. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, for a lot of people, if some people uh, don't actually know your work, how would you describe your work to other people? Um, largely I focus on education and in particular on education technology. So my work builds largely on the work of Charlotte Thompson Iserbeet. Uh, she wrote the deliberate dumbing down of America. She worked for the department of education under Ronald Reagan, blew the whistle on something called project best. That's basic education skills through technology, which was the government project to uh, set up public-private partnerships with big technology corporations that would use computers, in particular operant conditioning algorithms that condition students for workforce training. Uh, And so I've basically taken that work and updated it and plugged it into the Great Reset in the Fourth Industrial Revolution and sort of shown how it's all built towards the crescendo that we're seeing uh, in this new normal. Yeah, two questions there. I got two questions. Number one, Charlotte's obviously been important in your life. So, you know, a a little bit more about her would be very interesting to find out. But also, I take it um, the road from where her work was um, and the the Reagan era is basically the same path that we've been on and we are still on towards global educational um, infrastructure and its installation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so as far as there was a few departments that she was put in, um, or, or offices, rather, she was Office of Educational Research and Improvement, and uh, when she got hired, uh, the Assistant Secretary of Education, name was Donald Sinise, uh, and he said that, uh, or she told me the story was when she got hired, and she asked him, are you going to be loyal? And she said, well, you know, I figured that what he meant was, am I going to be loyal to the Constitution? So I said, of course. She said, you know, I was pretty <laughs> sure that he meant, was I going to be loyal to Ronald Reagan? 
And so, you know, she spent most of her time uh, digging. And then what does that mean? Does that mean, yeah, does that mean you're actually loyal to George H.W. Bush and and his guys? Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, you remember that uh, Reagan, he ran on the whole, uh, he wasn't going to have any trilaterals in his administration. He wasn't going to have any CFR. Of course, he obviously did. Uh, but, you know, more sinister would be the, the fact that he that uh, George H.W. Bush uh, was also a member of the Order of Skull and Bones. And for those that don't know, uh, the reason why we even know what we know about the, the Order of Skull and Bones is because Charlotte is a big leaks the address books or the catalogs. Uh, her father and her grandfather were both members of the Order of Skull and Bones. And uh, in the 80s, uh, Anthony C. Sutton, who wrote uh, America's Secret Establishment Introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, um, he had been working for the Hoover Institute, and he wrote a series called Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development. And there's three volumes, and basically what he found was that uh, the United States had been funding uh, the Soviet Union to the extent that they wouldn't have been quite the formidable adversaries that they became. Uh, when he went to publish the third volume, they basically said the phrase was, don't break your rice bowl, Anthony, meaning, you know, if you publish this, you're going to be persona non grata in academia. Uh, but he did it anyways. And uh, as a result, in he had his uh, academic career ruined. And and so uh, he wanted to know, like, you know, who were the men behind the curtain? Who, who did I upset? by uh, publishing this and uh, his research eventually led him around to the trilateral commission but also to the order of skull and bones he contacted charlotte charlotte gave him uh i'm trying to get up and grab them grab them here they are these are the catalogs here mm-hmm. and there's three of them and lovely for the people so, who can't who can't see this is a lovely uh look like they were black are they leather bound <laughs> they feel good uh, they look good Leather. No, 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 no. But these were it. like the special edition <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh, they typically didn't bind them in this way. Uh, I yep. remember that uh, her dad, when they got him that year, he, she, it was a special uh, special packaging yeah. here. Uh, and so she gave him that. And basically what he found was that a lot of the people that popped up in his research on the, uh, the Hoover series uh, were members of the order of skull and bones and he also discovered that they had also funded uh both sides of the war so they didn't just fund the soviets they also funded the nazis the, the infamous mm-hmm. example was the union banking regime um, and then, you know, a couple of generations later, or, or rather one generation later, H.W., two, two generations is George W., but uh, H.W. becomes eventually the head of the CIA. He was also the ambassador to China under Nixon, and then becomes vice president with Reagan. And when Charlotte's uh, in the educational research and improvement, but as she was digging around and finding things uh, that they, they sort of making a mess uh, of, of operations, they would move her from one office to the next. So they moved her from everywhere from there to public-private partnerships, which was mm. which would become school choice, which becomes the whole charter school, uh, the private funding of public education, mm. using public tax dollars to, to privatize uh, or to subsidize private uh, edu corporations. 
Um, and so, you know, that, that part of it, and then also the offices of, uh, in, in the uh, technology initiatives, uh, those sort of keep the, keep going and they, and they get, they continue their momentum, whether it's a left wing or a right wing administration. So you get the, you get the public private partnerships, uh, started in Reagan with Reagan, uh, around that time, you, you had uh, the head of the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, uh, that would have been Albert Shanker. He came up with the idea of charter schools. But then Clinton, right, Democrat, he actually signed into legislation the first federal charter school law. Um, and then the Obama administration was a huge proponent of charter schools. It got probably the biggest push that it got under uh, uh, Obama. He actually... His secretary of education was Arnie Duncan, and Arnie Duncan, uh, he made a name for himself by basically uh, boosting the, the whole charter school industry in Chicago through the Noble Network of Charter Schools and through the KIPP's Knowledge is Power program. Uh, and then, you know, you move to the Trump era, and you have Betsy DeVos all about school choice. So it's so the, the mm-hmm. Reagan project, which was uh, best encapsulated in Project Best. She uh, was a really strange one. Steady momentum. Betsy DeVos was a really strange one, if I remember correctly. I mean, uh, she didn't seem to have any sort of experience. She was brought in just for that uh, sort of... Is that? Am I thinking of the right person? Yeah, well, yeah. She's. I mean, she has no background in, in education, right? She doesn't have a degree in education. She And she seemed completely... She seemed uh, like she, she hasn't been to school. <laughs> she seemed basically stupid. Well, she's she's got the she's got a lot of money. So if you got money, you know, uh, you can you can do a lot with that money. That that uh, you don't need a whole lot of uh, <laughs> uh, academic credentials for. So I guess True. you know it wasn't. So she had she was a big uh, financer of charter schools. Uh, so mm-hmm. she funded in particular K twelve Inc. K twelve Inc. was the first virtual charter school. Mm. It was. I think it still is the largest virtual charter school in the United States. Can you explain to people uh, what charter schools are in, like, just to understand? Yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. So, in the United States, uh, our education system, we have, there's there's a public system and a private system. And uh, private education, you know, obviously you have to pay uh, tuition out of pocket. Okay. And it's traditionally hasn't gotten any subsidies from the tax dollars whether federal or state uh public education is always funded publicly so you know it's gone through different phases early on it was largely through um, uh, property taxes and then you know when they developed state boards of education they started to build uh and then with the development of the um every uh not the every every student succeeds act the second iteration. The first would have been Elementary and Secondary Education Act, and then different versions of those, basically the, the federal legislation governing uh, the, the budgeting and policy for, for public education. So what charter schools uh, are is it's they're basically public-private partnerships. So you have private companies uh, that are able to be, uh, get, use uh, public tax dollars. So basically... So, so, so were so these... 
were these uh, public-private partnerships? Were, were were they? Was that the first time they were introduced under Reagan, or had they already been doing this beforehand? Because I know that we, I mean that's what we experienced under New Labour is them pushing uh, this agenda completely upon us. But that's like twenty years later. Yeah, I was going to say there's a, the corollaries to, to my understanding, and I haven't done, done a super deep research into the, uh, the British education system, but uh, I believe you have, have something called, um, so you have a series of schools called academies, and those include like free schools, and uh, there's a couple others, right? And those are, those I believe are the comparable to uh, charter schools, right? Right, they, okay, they, yeah. They are created by trusts, and these trusts basically are basically funded. Uh, they're, they're essentially like nonprofit corporations, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as so, the, so the concept of charter schools starts early eight in the in the United States starts early eighties with Albert Shanker, who actually was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, but in some ways, the idea sort of in some ways precedes it. Um, there's a document I have somewhere around here that Charlie gave me uh, where. The concept actually can be traced back to Vichy, France. One of these days, I'm going to dig that up. <laughs> under under the Vichy French section somewhere. I have stacks. Yeah, well, it's I got a big I got several folders that say school choice on them. I mean, and it's it's in one of those folders. <laughs> um, but so so that's probably one of the earliest iterations but if you read um brzezinski's between two ages uh the subtitle something about the technotronic era this is <laughs> mid late 70s mm -hmm. he actually talks about uh, you know what what is now the fourth industrial revolution but he talks about this technotronic revolution and he d describes how education will sort of evolve into uh, he doesn't use the term charter schools or public-private partnerships, but what he says is that business will take a leading role in education, which is essentially that that's the, the project. And in particular, what they'll do is they'll facilitate um, uh, technotronic education. So they use computers to facilitate the learning uh, and largely what he promoted was, was through the home. So there's a big homeschooling movement that's arisen to sort of uh, resist all the crazy stuff that goes on in schools now. Uh, and what a lot of people inadvertently are falling into the trap of is uh, that these, they're basically signing up for these virtual charter schools. So what you're doing is you're taking in a private company in your house uh, and essentially the federal government as well, because right, in order to be accredited and to receive the federal tax dollars, they have to abide by the federal uh, standards and curriculums. So you're really just taking the, the school system and you're basically bringing it into your home and, and uh, subsidizing it, not only with your tax dollars, but with your, your home infrastructure. But uh, so that so that idea, you know, like I said, we could probably trace it back to Vichy, France, uh, early, early, uh, earlier or later, early iterations uh conceptualized by Brzezinski and then the, the project itself sort of gets weight behind it uh when when Shanker comes up with the idea and then the Reagan administration starts to give it the uh federal uh, backing it's very interesting you got this pseudo-nationalist sort of 
uh, history to all of this. It's like I say pseudo-nationalist because, of course, Vichy France was very much down with the Nazis as soon as they come around. And I, I live down in the uh, south of France where where they really, really had a strong base. And I can see why. I, I it's pretty obvious. Is a there is a, a lot of what I, I, I'd say race, racism, of course, is subjective to, to where you are and relative to where you are and what the people within your culture believe is racism. But down there, I mean, they were pretty racist. <laughs> I mean, it was quite fantastic to hear some of their rhetoric and be like, wow, they think this is normal. You know, I come from a place where everybody just gets on with each other. You can't, you can't keep having arguments about race all the time when everybody, all your next door neighbors are from other countries, you have, you have to find some form of common ground, you know? And living in the cities in in places like Britain and America, that's what you have. You have a lot of mixed race sort of uh, feeling in all of the cities down in out in the country. It's a little bit different, but down in um in in France, it's really like in in that area. It's a really stark difference between the um, haves and have-nots and their skin color and ancestry. So I lived in a uh, Lyon on uh, Avenue Franklin Roosevelt um and on avenue franklin roosevelt everybody was basically white <laughs> and then on either side with the banyuls the like sort of suburbs where all of the black people and arabic people were in these really big high like high-rise tower blocks and they were just like you know they have their own life and they don't interact and there's a whole two different ways of of living form and there's a lot of uh there's you know, a massive disparity. And so I'm not surprised that something like this comes from that sort of area where you can have this sort of, where capitalism and democracy meets fascism and and dictatorship, really. Um, those sort of places seem to be where a lot of this sort of ideology originated from in those sort of melting pots. So I'm not surprised to hear that. Really interesting. I mean, for, for, in every country now, we're getting basically the same sort of offer from our governments about schooling. We don't have much say. It's all going in a certain direction. And basically they say, this is the direction we've got to go. So we have no alternative um, was there ever an alternative or were they all on board from around the 80s with this agenda? So there was always uh, a homeschooling movement, um, you know, going chin back chin again. And uh, so you could say that that's I mean, if there's any any sort of resistance, I mean, there's kind of a dialectical game that's played. Right. So. I see the, the United States education system in like three broad phases. So the first one is the compulsory education phase, which started in mid 1800s with Horace Mann at Antioch College. And uh, uh, followed by that was a period of federalization um, that was sort of buttressed by uh, large foundation funding. So the uh, Rockefeller General Education Board uh, there's a there was a Peabody uh, nonprofit as well that was really big in the early phases, but then shortly thereafter you had your uh, your Carnegie Corporation, uh, your Carnegie uh, Institute for the Advancement of Teaching, uh, Ford Foundation. I seen the German Marshall Fund when I was researching the German Marshall Fund. I seen them uh, doing the same thing in the same area during the 1970s, late 70s, going on 80s as well. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the members, a lot of the people who were on the board, I mean, the German Marshall Fund was the the first, but the advisory board was David Rockefeller, John J. McCloy, and all of the CFR gang. And they were ba- basically pushing the same sort of things, but they were that was really um, a, a, a place to study the impact and come up with some of the ideology with some of the movers and shakers uh, of the grand scene. Yeah, well, the 70s is an interesting period because you have so... Right, so in '68 you have the, uh, uh, the the Club of Rome is set up, and then in '70 uh, you have the World Economic Forum, and then in, I want to say '72 or '73 you have the Trilateral Commission. All right, and uh, in the, I think it was the third annual uh, meeting of the World Economic Forum was the one where uh, Aurelio Pesci was the head of the uh, one of the, the co-founders of the Club of Rome. Uh, he basically pitched the limits to growth thesis to the World Economic Forum. And also at that same annual meeting, this was the same annual meeting where Klaus Schwab pitched his idea for stakeholder capitalism, which he had just developed a couple years prior to that. Mm, stakeholder yeah, capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that's a bit like the, the story behind that. I think that was the whole ideology was kind of given to him by the people within Harvard and he was the, became the face of it. But that's just my own from my own like research on that go on yeah well i mean which right and what you see though is like with something like what what brzezinski is pitching right he was basically a co-founder of the trilateral commission with mm. david rockefeller right his, this idea of these public private partnerships using technology at a global scale right i mean this is essentially the stakeholder capitalism project right and he, he and and klaus schwab and the, the book was that he something about european management of industries or something was the, was the book where the concept kind of comes out of. Uh, but it's not too long after that that you start to see the, the, the word stakeholder, right, in like you're in these executive orders or public legislation, whether federal, state, or local, and you start to see the, you know, companies using the stakeholder language. Um, and so uh, this is also, you know, it's this is also sort of the precursor to uh, somebody like Shanker, right, coming up with this with this project for uh, school choice, right? So uh, all, all of that is, is sort of, you know, what we're seeing now in this in this new, you know, the, the, the communitarian slash public-private stakeholder capitalism, which is basically just a combination of corporate fascism, uh, you know, basically the fascist economics or, or, or using you know the, the cartel model of fascist economics and sort of uh blending it with this communitarian ethos that sort of mm-hmm. um, on some of the marxist uh, ethos of you know uh basically like a, a, a welfare state right so in other words these pub these these fascistic public-private partnerships are to be used to facilitate sort of what the American version of the Marxist system, which became, you know, the social de- democratic uh, welfare state, right? And so these, mm-hmm. so these, these giant, you know, multinational companies are gonna are gonna take care of the the serfs, so to speak, with various, um, you know, the welfare programs, and it sort of gets it uh, a, a a new flavor in in the 21st century with the rise of critical theory and cultural studies and so you know the whole dialectic or the whole class dynamic of you know the bourgeois and the proletariat 
uh, sort of becomes bifurcated or, or fragmented into sort of the dialectic between the various race, class, gender, sexual identity, all these different marginalized groups. And so through these stakeholder public-private partnerships uh, that use, you know, their ESG and social impact financing, uh, that the, the projects or the, the, um, the, the ethos behind that is not just that they're going to help subsidize the poor, but they're going to help uplift all these different marginalized identity groups. Okay. And so, you know, which, so this great reset project, right. Is, is, is at least as old as, uh, as the early seventies. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I concur. Um, I, I know some people would have been saying, well, it's 1971 was the first World Economic Forum, but through the 1970, through 1970, they were planning that out. They, that's when John Kenneth Galbraith and Herman Kahn came to Europe, uh, along with Otto van Hofsburg, to convince people that the project was worthwhile and that they should get on board. And, like, the first year was a success. Second year, like, 1971, it was January 1971. So, you know, a lot of that was organized throughout 1970. Then 1971, you got the first one 1972 you got a dip 1973 you've got Aurelio Petri standing up on the stage and saying some of the things that you're not allowed to say and uh, you know everybody got excited and it was I, I've documented in my work that um, Herman Kahn's response to that the, the man who wrote on thermonuclear wars considered the real Dr. Strangelove but really that's a character which is an amalgamation of a load of different people at the time very famous people um, but Herman Kahn he was like devastated by the Club of Rome's view of the world and this new like neo-Malfusian uh, like cult that suddenly took over everything and I think that sort of ideology mixed in with this uh, stakeholder capitalism to appear at the same time like that uh, they're so it's obviously a symbiotic relationship i think there's no i think they came from the same place so i think klaus schwab became the front for that and then what you see through the 70s like the 70s is so interesting is them pushing environmentalism and education that's the 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 two main things we cover we hide behind the cover of environmentalism grow up like an NGO of foundation structure and non-governmental organization structure that's linked to the intelligence apparatus uh, at the same time. But really just every time that we want to achieve so something like a coup in the future, like by the late 80s and early 90s, as the color revolutions were starting in Europe, what you started to see was them hiding behind environmental movements. And then the first thing they do is change education. You know, they knew what the, the, those are the, you need to get into being able to write the rules for the next generation if you're going to take over the country within 10, 20 years. And that's what they do. They go in at education. That's one of the most important parts of, of everything. That's partly why I think it's so important that uh, the, the destination of where the World Economic Forum led to be with the Global Leaders for Tomorrow and the Young Global Leaders Program. That's all about, it's still all about education. It may not be about educating children anymore, anymore but it's about educating leadership groups which is much more important because then that obviously trickles down so all of that period is just astounding <clears throat> astounding um right oh yeah so go on oh go for it, go for it. no i want you, you you please 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 oh, i was just gonna say that um 
Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when people think sustainable development goals, they usually think that it's, you know, green energy and, uh, you know, clean, clean energy and all sorts of other green technologies, right? Carbon sequestration and things like that. But uh, if you actually look at the, the 17 goals, they actually come out of what was called the the, uh, the Millennium Development Goals, right? So the, the term prior, right, did not have the narrow connotation of, uh, basically the green movement, right? It had a broader, uh, you know, futurist approach to all aspects of society, all aspects of the global economy, all aspects of international relations, so education, uh, po you know, poverty reduction. Uh, but basically the, the, the SDGs are basically the same as the MDGs. There's a couple more. Uh, they just, one of the original MDGs was sustainable development. So they just took that one and they sort of made that the umbrella term. Mm -hmm. But if you look at like SDG number four, that's quality education. SDG number 17 is partnerships for the goals. Uh, in particular, SDG 4.4, what they emphasize is polytechnical workforce training. Uh, SDG 4.7, it is basically emphasizes global citizenship. And then SDG uh, 4.B uh, emphasizes the expansion of of, uh, global uh, IT technologies and STEM education. And if you look at SDG 17, 17.16 uh, emphasizes multi-stakeholder partnerships. So the stakeholder capitalist uh, language is cooked right into the SDG number 17. Uh, and then within that, SD, uh, SDG 17.6 is increased access to global technology. 17.8 uh, is in, enhance the use of IT and other technologies, and then 17.17 emphasizes public-private partnerships, which, right, the idea of public-private partnerships and a stakeholder approach is, is basically just saying that, uh, you know, instead of the shareholders, right, so you have the people that run the company and then the people that are invested in it and sort of uh, the dance between those two, the, the public-private partnerships with these other stakeholders would be what they call community-based or organizations, right? And those could be everything from uh, your trade unions uh, or to your to your employees to to your schools, right? Um, and so, from the as you know, from the get-go, uh, the two, right? They don't just happen to come together at the end, right? I mean, they start at the same place, they're pitched mm -hmm. at the same place by essentially the same people. Suspicious. Uh, so it's it's a it's effectively uh, it's all part of the same same agenda, right? It's it's always been that way. Yeah, 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 most definitely. And we're we're right. We're heading towards this now. We've gone through. You've just given us a little rundown. We've given a taste of what was going on late sixties, um, all through the seventies. Then, of course, we've also talked about some of what was going on in the eighties and how we got here. And you know, I we we were talking about it. There is similar, big similarities um between the uk government's approach under uh new labor and tony blair to uh what you've described to us about um public private partnerships and charter schools in america so i think like uh, across, across the world everybody can connect with this and it all seems to sound like a way to infiltrate places you don't want too much um private 
messing around you know there's a they, you don't really want your private corporations to be involved in your schools or you, what your children are learning and all of these things because you know where that ends is going to be negative so obviously these all of these um structures are set up to mean that we have no option you have to choose one of these models that includes doing the thing you don't want to do which is allowing whatever service that you find important to be infiltrated by the private sector somehow so it's constantly making holes within the public sector for the private sector to enter and th those you know it's really hard then to extricate that when when it's around uh, everywhere and it's a part of everything how do you um take it out of society so we're we've hit so say we're hitting the 90s what what is the 90s and noughties uh how is this progression how has this progressed throughout that period then in america mainly oh the 90s i mean that's that's largely when i grew up um you know uh, it's that that particular decade is not one that i can really uh where anything really jumps out at me in particular uh so what I was your schooling like um I don't remember much about schooling because I wasn't really paying much I didn't do very good in school I uh you know I was basically I was I mean they said I was smart or whatever I, I guess I was smart enough like they wanted most classes but I got kicked out of those uh and then was let back in eventually uh but you know I was mainly tried to I tried to figure out what was the quickest way to get a C, you know, like, well, how could I cut, cut enough corners, you know, Never. Never. kind of get by. I was pretty much a class clown and stuff like that. So, uh, I, you know, I didn't read any, I think the only thing I ever read that was assigned to me was I read, I don't think I read the whole thing, but I read a lot of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because I happened to be suspended at, uh, for like a week and, uh, <laughs> the irony <laughs> so i would like you know i go and um get home before the, the suspension letter got home and i take it out of the mail and then go to the go to the bus stop i'm going to school and then when the bus came I just got at the park and, and read mary shelley's frankenstein but most of what i read on my own was uh you know I, I read the whole old testament i uh read you know four noble truths a lot of uh, buddhist sutras and i read uh studied the Ching quite a bit i read a lot mm. of Edgar mm. like i was into a lot of esoteric you know like religion philosophy mysticism and all that type of stuff um you know and that's that's sort of i guess you know i, I took some time off took some time off i'm off uh high school and college did some construction work and uh by the time i went to college you know it was just kind of like you know for the most part I, I at that point i realized that i'd had to have a different approach so i, I pretty much just you know uh, did my best to get the grades you know i, I still wasn't really engaged in the curriculum in, in that way you know what i mean like i've, I've always been interested in most of the education, I guess, that I've that I've cultivated has been not through academia, even though I've been in academia my whole life, I guess, which is kind of a strange thing to say. I, I you know, the only 
the best things I'd say I got from academia was learning learning their discourse, right? In other words, learning, you know, like the, the jargon and the, the specialized, you know, technical language they use to, you know, to mark that they are in the in that, that you know, circle that they know what they're talking about. Right? They have some authoritative uh, position on their analysis. And then just the citation system, right? In other words, uh, words uh, and how, how to pull in search and uh, you know, database and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I try to take that approach and uh, apply it to you know, the conspiracy theory. You know, I mean, most of the crypto politics reach that I did is academia that a an academic uh, approach, you know, but as far as me in, in grade school and in high school, you know, I was, school was, uh, was not on my list of priorities. <laughs> I like, I, I do like how the only time your line broke up during that period was when you said conspiracy theorist <laughs> and then it, then it broke up for a little bit just seemed like well isn't that it gets more it's more it's the universe um but yeah i i feel i listen i feel akin this is why i think we we we, we kind of get on go on sorry I was just going to say, I mean, what did pop up to me? So in the 90s would have been, you know, so that would have been the Clinton era. So that would have been uh, when he passed the, the those, the, uh, oh, I forget the name of the bill, but it was something like the Federal Charter Schooling Act or the Public Charter Schools Act or something like that. There was two versions of it. He signed one and then uh, early on and then one uh, shortly thereafter. So that's one of the things that would have uh, popped out to me. As far as uh, education, you know, H.W. Bush's administration would have been early '90s as well, um, and wasn't the na the uh, not a nation at risk that would have been in the '80s with uh, Bell and Reagan, but there was something something sort of built on that. It starts with an end, but it, it escapes me. But those are, those are the two things that I can sort of uh, that I could that pop up pop out to me as far as yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that's a, a weird period to think back on and look back on. But there was a lot going on in Clinton's administration. Uh, straight away, he had brought in some big guys. I remember I wrote a piece for um, UK Column, which was about David Shaw, D.E. Shaw, um, which was a big hedge fund. Um, eventually, they'd become, uh, or uh, during the, around that time, in actual fact, they were 5% of the overall New York Stock Exchange. So they they, they obviously, their investments had a, a bit of sway. And before even Clinton got into office, it, David Shaw was writing uh, white papers for him on the use of technology because he, he saw the internet coming a mile off, but the use of technology within different uh, institutions. So I'm sure he would have been involved in some of that. And it, it, it it's a period where there was lots of activity um, going on in every single part. I think, I think that was the nineties was a period where our world started to be designed by intelligence agencies behind closed doors and incorporated into policy uh, institutes that were becoming more globally global leaning um as as the whole east west dynamic was breaking down so i i'm i'm pretty positive that we we would have had similar experiences especially in school by the sounds of it we were both class clowns and very, very naughty boys uh and it, the difference being you were trying to get the just trying to get the grades i didn't get the grades at all i was terrible in school i couldn't help it i just like 
I, I was so just like wanted to play football all the time. That's all. I wanted to play football all the time. Anyway, and smoke weed. Uh, and, and so anyway, uh, I mean, your experience of school, you've gone through that. You go into university. What were you studying at university then? How, what led you to going back into school? Oh, I think I just was, you know, it's funny because I look back and I go like, maybe I should have just stayed swinging a hammer, man, because, uh, <laughs> you know, academia, certainly I'm, so I'm an adjunct professor. I don't know if they have something comparable uh, over there, but so okay. for those that don't know, an adjunct is somebody who's hired uh, per course, per semester, no benefits, no office, no tenure track, right? So... Uh, it was just sort of, you know, if you think of academia like any any other company, right, you know, you sort of have, like, the owner, right, you know, maybe the regional director is way up there, and then, like, in the actual building, right, you have, like, a team of managers, and then under that, you have a bunch of, you know, employees, right, mm -hmm. and and then you have, like, you know, your staff or, you know, janitorial stuff or whatever maintenance, so if you think about school, it's the same way, so the managerial class is, like, the tenure track people they have offices, they have benefits, they have all this stuff, right? They get releases, they get paid a, a living wage. Uh, the adjuncts, uh, it's uh, Obamacare. They limited how many classes we could get and how many hours we get to two, two okay. minutes. I, I got to ask a question. I, I got to ask a question. You don't know if Ted Kaczynski was an adjunct professor, do you? Or <laughs> if he was a full day, if he no, got the benefits. No, no. I reckon he would have been. I reckon he would have had the hardship. I reckon that, that would have been part of it anyway. Was he Sorry, a professor? I know he I think I think yeah 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 I I think he went back and he was a he, he, before he went into the wild I think that's what he was doing I might be wrong because on occasion quite a few occasions I can be wrong <laughs> but um but that's what I seem to remember so so I'm sure yeah. someone will tell me at some I, point I, I haven't you know I don't remember a lot of I just remember you know I remember uh you know when I was a kid hearing the stories and just like there's a crazy guy. It's like, you know, putting mail bombs. I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about his manifesto until, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 15 years ago. You yeah, know? Yeah, so yeah. I just, I mean, Same, and yeah. I was a kid. I was very young, so I probably wasn't paying attention. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much, I, I wonder how much attention that actually got in the media. I know they published his manifesto in, like, New York Times or something. They were getting used uh, I, to I doing that. Remember. They did. They they did that with the Zodiac Killer as well, and they did that with a few others where they started to publish uh, bits, and it was it's like so like oh, it could be anybody. It kind of had to. I, I think it was purposely done. It kind of had the Jack the Ripper effect, um, where where you 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 uh, everybody wants a little bit of the limelight, and everybody wants to know the story, so they all everybody speaks about it, and there's just no truth out there at all hard to discern because there's so many voices and they're all saying different stuff um but yeah go on sorry oh you know oh you know uh yeah so you know uh so i don't uh you know i i fly below the radar which is a good thing you know what i mean so i've written this book and it's not you know it's not exactly the popular thing to say uh as far as in academia right i mean they're all about all the public private technology partnerships especially post-covid i mean it's it was just a rubber stamp session when uh, I was able to uh, 
get to get on the CARES committee as the adjunct representative was only because other people complained that there were no adjuncts on the committee. And uh, I shared some some insights into some of the legislation and they were like, oh, you know, you might be helpful or whatever. And uh, it just, you know, it was, took a lot of my time uh, to sort of just spin my wheels. You know, I mean, every, every, we were basically supposed to propose technologies for distance learning. And, you know, what I was trying to do was at least get more information about the proposals because everybody was just sort of like, you know, we need a simulator for dental tech. Didn't name the company, didn't have a description of what, what yeah, the policy was, or yeah. protections, didn't say anything about the efficacy, did the technology do what it said it would do. It was just like, we got money, let's get technology, stamp, 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 stamp. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, but, but it, it's, it's like, um, you know, the university, I thought that. You know, it would be a it would be a cushier route than uh, carpentry, and uh, you know, in some ways, I've probably worked work more. I certainly work more hours. I know that work way more hours than I would do a construction. I certainly make a lot less money because I got a lot of friends that you know GEDs that make more than I do doing construction. Right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is the nature of business as opposed to academia. And I, I, I you know, I got to say this because you know, I. Probably, I think about it a lot. You know, for, for academia is probably the, the, the institutionally right. It's probably the biggest cheerleader for Marxism or or socialism or right communism. All these different versions of the, of that brand of economics, uh, and they're always about you know everybody's the exploit exploited worker and the exploited uh, minority and the exploit. They are, but they are the most exploitative institutions when it comes to their employees. It means the hypocrisy yeah. is out of this uh-huh. world. Like, first of all, as an adjunct, I've tried, you know, like in one of the, one of the schools where I teach, you know, it's in a neighborhood where I grew up, and I used to volunteer there before I became an adjunct. And when they had openings for, you know, a full time position, this is years ago. I stopped even trying. Uh, that never even got an interview. And they always pick the person that's got the PhD. Some some random person from afar that's got a PhD because, you know, what it looks like in terms of their, you know, their ethos and, you know, the PhDs, you know, has a, a greater ability to uh, get grants, right, for grant, you know, get grant monies and things like that. So, you know, and, it, and by the way, it's at a community college. It's not at a university. <laughs> it's not part of your school. Right. Like most of the people that are come out of those schools are going to get a two year associate's degree. Right. They don't necessarily need somebody that's has Ph.D. level specialization in a, in a highly academic field. Right. They need somebody that can give them the Gen Ed. Right. So you so somebody with a master's degree that lived in that community that volunteered at that place you would think would at least get an interview. Right. Like at least in corporations like they actually tend to to hire in-house right because they don't have to train somebody new right you already know how we operate right we just need to sort of get you up to speed on these other tasks uh they academia is is the total opposite so it's just like you know for 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 an institution to be you know so vocal about you know the, the exploited worker uh and to promote that stuff you would think that they would at least reflect it in their hiring policies but that's a that's a whole nother issue so when i went to college i basically just you know tried to you know stay out of trouble get good grades sort of regurgitate the lecture under the paper to make the professor happy i was studying english 
uh, literature in particular, and then uh, eventually, you know, because I, like I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't rock the boat or anything for most of my undergrad, and so they paid for me to do an assistantship. And you know, it was during the Bush era that I was undergrad, and uh, you know, I kind of had looked around and. You know, this was this was when I went through my own like Marxist kind of socialist phase because I didn't really have a background in kind of geopolitics or political science. And then, you know, I was like, well, this Iraq war stuff is horrible. Like, you know, and and they're they're pushing all this Marxist critical theory in the schools, and it's like, oh, so so these people are against the Bush stuff, right? The 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 Iraq war stuff, the this what what I saw as the capitalist stuff. So I was like, okay, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm against that. So that means, you know, I like, so I like this other team. And then when Obama got in and basically did the same thing in terms of foreign policy, uh, and I started to point it out to the professors that I thought like were had, were people of principle, right? That they would like call it out. And, no, you know, it, 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 uh, what I learned was that it, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not even ideologues. They're, they're just they're just they're basically i don't know if demagogue is the right word but they're ba- they're what they they're not against corporatism at, in principle they're against they just want to be in charge of the company they yes they 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 are not against corporatism in principle they're against not being the person who the corporatists rely upon for all of their wisdom um that's what i feel that it's been like for 150 plus years and when you were talking then i was thinking about an article from years ago i can't remember where it was in um oh it has to be in I think Los Angeles times or something along those lines, but back in 1890s. So I think about 1896 and it was an article written by Alice Ricks, a really big one. I covered it during, I read it all out during the uh, Bohemian Grove episode in Newshound. And, and she describes the people who are part members of the Bohemian club. And this, this club that's been existing for, for uh, 23 years and is growing in stature greatly, but great, and so she goes and she interviews um, uh, uh, the idea of the free dynamics that exist within it. The owl, so the, the, the people of government, the people of power, the people who was meant to be wise, uh, the bohemian, the actor, the entertainer, the vagabond and rogue, the singer, the charmer, you know, the ones who, who uh, need government, but, but they're not interested in that. They're doing arts and stuff, but they can't be relied on for anything. And then the people of the mortarboard. And the people of the more deplored, of course, professors and university. And she talks about each of these and she describes them fantastically. And she talks about the people of the, like the owl being very, you know, we know exactly what we need to do. And the people of uh, Bohemians being like, oh, well, I don't want to intrude, but uh, I'll have a little bit of cake if you, if you're offered to me, you know, and, and and it kind of like brings out the characters. But when she's talking about the people of the more she described exactly what you're describing there. 
people who want to be a member of the big club that makes the rules because they should because they're educating they know everything they're reading everything they're learning everything they're changing the world they're changing the world at this level down here so they're more important than everybody else even though they can understand why the people in office do the things they do they wouldn't do them if they talked to them and the bohemians they were like had do much and they wouldn't be able to do any of that unless it was for the people of the mortarboard so the people of the more the, the, the men of the mortarboard believe that they're the greatest in the world and that that they can do no wrong and make no wrong decision is what alice ricks in the 1800s was expressing and i think that's kind of what you describe there uh if i'm not wrong yeah, no, no, I mean, it comes directly out of Plato's Republic. It's as old as Plato's Republic, right? And so his whole <laughs> idea was that you would have philosopher kings that would rule, that would be the golden caste, and they would rule over the silver <laughs> and bronze, and the silver would be basically the military, and the bronze were what they called the husbandmen, and the, the basically the farmers and the, and the you know, cattle, uh, cattle drivers and things like that. Right. And uh, basically, you know, for, for Plato, he, he thought that, you know, uh, this is where you get the term aristocracy. Right. He thought that the best form of government is his republic would have been an aristocracy. The root Aristotle basically just means the best. So the best would rule for him. The best were the wisest and the wisest were the people that studied philosophy. And, you know, you, you push you jump forward to late 1800s, early uh, uh, early 1900s. And you have uh, someone like Aldous Huxley, who, you know, I've read his nonfiction essays. I've got all, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six volumes of his nonfiction essays. And if you read his nonfiction essays and then you read Brave New World, there's, there are several passages in which he talks very favorably about uh, the eugenics and the behavioral conditioning and the Malthusian population control in uh in in brave new world in particular he there's an essay called a, a note on eugenics uh there's one that's t titled something like on the future of the past or something like that um i'm going to actually write a paper about this uh that is hopefully going to get published in a uh in an academic uh anthology that's going to get published out of uh come out of a conference in poland that hopefully i am going to be able to go to in september if uh if 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 the, the, there's not a hot war with Russia there, yesterday I saw that um, something going on in Belarus where Poland's getting kind of antsy and, and yeah yeah saying don't mess. Expect that to continue. Expect that to continue round and round in a circle. The fact is, is that it'll still remain that the main targets of or the main centers of all of these will be uh, the same targets that the American intelligence uh, infrastructure has been aiming at for ages, and that doesn't really include. Poland, Poland is 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 pretty safe, and it's usually just rhetoric backwards forwards. Just just my opinion. Uh, it's Belarus, Georgia, Ukraine, and uh, and and probably one other. I can't remember which ones the other. The the real ones that they they really just it's going to keep sparking off. So things will happen there, and they'll make comments around the region. But I think you'll be all right. Hopefully, come on, come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the way I looked at it was, I mean, some of it's like you know, you get a you get a ticket you don't get a refund on that. You know what I mean? So it's like, but then I'm thinking like, well, if they, if something does go down in Poland, right? Like losing, losing a plane ticket is probably not the worst of my worries. 
countries at that point, right? And that probably means there's going to be some other really nasty geopolitical conflicts that are going to kick off, which are going to come along with all all sorts of other draconian the, domestic yeah. policies here to make sure... There's no uh, way that war kicks off in Poland against Russia and holy hell doesn't break loose. There's no way on earth. That's like, strategically, there's been... Uh, I mean, there's also... You could go back to World War Two and say, well, you know, it was Poland where everything started to kick off because Poland is so fundamentally important. It's so fundamentally important to the stability of Europe everybody knows it so and and russia's playing the same game as the west is playing they're dancing around each other um i it's, it's it seems like maybe it's like a dance between um like culture and sort of narcissistic ideology really like excessive culture on the one side with russia and culture being so rich and there being a, an American sort of beast behind a lot of what's going on that wanted to create a culture out of many other cultures and hasn't really done it and is a bit soulless when it comes to interacting in the world. Wow, yeah, man. Yeah, go on. Poland, I mean, what, what uh, uh, Carol Quigley calls the Balkans, uh, uh, or rather the buffer zone, which is the Balkans, uh, you know, basically always sort of been stuck in the middle between, you know, Germany, France, and England in, in some combination or another having beef with Russia, and then those countries basically getting stuck in the middle because they're sort of what, what we call the buffer fringe, right? So, you know, they sort of almost very similar in some ways to, you know, what, what some of the, uh, you know, Middle Eastern and African countries sort of get stuck into, which is like, you know, you got Eastern Europe and Western Europe starting a fight in or around your country, and you're sort of like, well, who's going to be on? It's like, uh, I don't want to be on either side, but, you know, as the as the troops start marching in, I mean, you almost force them to be. To yeah, well, of course, you can't, I mean, there's only, there's only a couple of countries that have ever been able to remain neutral during World War, and it's always for other reasons, you know, always for other uh, convenient reasons for all sides. Switzerland is an example of that, but also is strategically, I mean, Switzerland can defend itself because it's mainly mountains all around, so it's only got to defend a little bit, and it's kind of like the 300 defending the breach or whatever, um, but or, also... Um, Spain, but both it it was it was very like during World War Two it was very convenient for those countries to be have neutrality, uh, so that the war could continue on both sides. So it wasn't wasn't helpful in the way. But yeah, happened. but so anyway, so I kind of went on a tangent. My my point was that uh, Aldous Huxley he uses the term mm. uh, science. So scientific caste system, intellectual aristocracy. These are his terms that he uses in, in multiple essays. There was, a, there was a radio recording he did on the BBC to promote his his book when it came out. Um, and if you look at the, the the caste system, the eugenic caste system in in Brave New World, uh, the different castes, uh, which he uh, describes in terms of like phrenological terms, right? So he calls like some of the epsilons brachycephalic, right? And then some there seems to be a racial hierarchy. Uh, in his description, although it's not, it's not, there's some overlap there, right? I mean, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. not just, right, all the black and brown people at the bottom. The uh, best and, of each caste, like. Yeah, there's, there's, every once in a while you get, a, you get uh, somebody that's, you know, of a different ethnic lineage in a different caste in, in, when, you, when you read through the novel. But 
what he breaks it down into is basically he also uses the eugenic IQ terminology, so he refers to the epsilons as semi morons, okay, mm -hmm. and and the cast are alpha, you know, the delta epsilon, etc. Right? Is so, that where I am? <laughs> it sounds about right. It sounds like I'm a probably semi moron. If they, if I mean, according to Aldous Huxley, I would think semi moron. I, I'm gonna find out that I'm a full on moron, don't I? I'm gonna find out. They would probably think that we're all uh, semi morons. It, you know, oh, it was yeah. Bertrand Russell that said something. This is a, you know, sort of an interesting note: is that um, he said something like, "Eventually, we'll 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 get state policies where we can." sterilize anybody that doesn't meet the basic school requirements he literally says that i want to say it's uh it's, it's science uh impact of science on civilization or something like that it's one of those books that, that he says it in and or in practice science on society something like that and um but he says you know well and it'll be good because we'll get rid of all the you know the, the unfit but uh, we'll also lose a lot of good people too, because he said that you know clearly um, Charles Dickens's father, I guess, I guess the guy, you know, I, I don't know if he's a drunk or something, but he, he what, apparently didn't wasn't the best father according to Bertrand Russell. He says you know we would have definitely sterilized him, right? And if we did that, I mean, we wouldn't have Charles Dickens, right? And if you think about people like oh, Stephen no. Hawking or Beethoven, right, like the people that have had you know defects, so to speak. Then yeah. all, but yet nonetheless contributed. I thought it. you were saying something bad about Beethoven's mum there. <laughs> oh, I don't know anything about. <laughs> uh, That's what she know. said. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, it's India. I don't know why he, they use him as an example because he wasn't congenitally deaf. I believe that 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 developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, maybe yeah. there was a gene that showed that down the pipe he would have became deaf. But the the point is, right? Like these were because deafness was something that uh, like Alexander Graham Bell, who you know uh, was very much a proponent of eugenics, was those that was one of the things that he they wanted to get rid of, right? This was always like the positive uh, sort of pitch for it, right? Not just like let's get rid of all these ethnic subpopulations, but it was like well, we'll get rid of disease and, and mental illness and, you know, um, you know, uh, various forms of um, mental handicap, you know, what they would have clinically called retardation back in the day, right? And the only thing with that is that, you know, uh, you can't, you can't actually divorce the two to a certain degree, right? You know what I mean? Like, you, you if you don't accept the, the flaws that, of, of humanity, then you necessarily you you might you might set the bar back here. Oh, we're just going to do deaf people, right? But eventually, once you do that, I was like, well, why not? You know, blind people too, and why not? And that's and so you know, if you if you use that as your as your ethic as your axiology, uh, you know, I I don't. Eventually, what you 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 start pathologizing more and more attributes until you know you get down to some sort of you know, mass manufactured sort of, you know, cookie cutter human that, you know, fits perfectly into, you know, whatever public private partnership career pathway we have uh, set for you. But, 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 you know, but, but again, the, you know, all this goes back to Plato's Republic and that's why Huxley uses the Greek letters to refer to the different caste systems. So how much weight, oh, oh, I, cause I, I'm going to be, um, there's a lot of crossover within, something that i'm working on 
Uh, we're we're going to get talk behind the scenes at some point about a load of this because I'm working on something really amazing with a load of a couple of other people, not a load of other people, uh, but that's going to come out next year. Um, that will include, uh, obviously, will will skirt along Huxley, um, both Huxleys, but I, I mean, you're obviously he's a really easy um, way to show people how the elites think about race, uh, how they think about gender, how they think about equality, how they think about us, how they think about the others. And it is a, it is something that people, if they understand it, then they can understand the dynamic of why they look down upon us and maybe we don't get the same sort of benefits in life and they're making uh this uh, world what does this what do you think that they're being true to like an old vision or are they just using bits of these sort of like thinkers and where where do you see it in the future because i can see what what um like people like huxley envisioned what do you think we're going to get to that's in that area if that makes sense i mean i think it's i think it's basically a blueprint i mean it's not just so the eugenics i mean uh i just sort of i, I sort of ran through that uh that's so the first chapter is all about setting sort of setting the plot setting the, the providing the setting and so what you have is you have a world government or we call the world state okay the model is community identity stability so you have this sort of collectivist right communitarian sort of uh uh ideology and everybody in the world in the world state is named after uh, people who were foundational to the theories and, and, uh, and ideas of, of the world state so that would be the eugenicists and the behaviorists and also the communists and the fascists right so uh what you have is you know you have people like uh characters names bernard marx Oh, that's a combination of George Bernard Shaw, who's a Fabian socialist, and Karl Marx. You have uh, Lenin a crown. Uh, Lenin, uh, right, being a play on Vladimir Lenin. And, you know, I've looked at who the crowns refer to, and, um, you know, I don't know. There's there's different theories. Um, I'm not sure that it, it may or may not refer to the crown family of Chicago or another crown family out of, out of Britain. Um, but there's several, right, examples of uh communist socialists right and then even the anarchists right there's a character with it that has a name bakunin in it um and then but you also have uh the basically the industrial mechanism of the world state so the eugenics is mass produced through an assembly line and babies in bottles and uh the that whole assembly line is basically a symbol for what becomes their deity which is ford right so they say instead of uh, oh lord or our lord they say our ford instead of making the sign of the cross they make the sign of the t right like a model t all right so what you see is right what is he saying he's, you have a combination of again the sort of the corporatists you know uh sort of fascist market or industrial economics with again the, the marxist or the communist ethos and there's in one of his essays he actually says he literally says that the fascist party in italy the communist party in russia and the kuomintang in china are all imperfect imperfect versions of the perfect uh, statecraft that will be the the uh 
the statecraft of the future. Right? So, I and mean, this is in his nonfiction essays, right? Mm -hmm. But he says there's going to be some sort of a caste system that's based largely on genetics. Um, and in, in the realm of education, you can see something like is a, a field called precision education that wants to personalize your learning based on your genetic IQ. Um, oh, sneaky. And in the second chapter, it's all about behaviorism. It's all about how after they breed the babies in bottles, uh, then they condition them, right? And so the lower castes go through a series of uh, punishments to make them scared of uh, nature and, and, and reading, basically. So they, they bring the babies out and they shock them and let off loud explosions uh, when they get close to these these roses and these books, so that they'll be scared of nature and reading, right? Uh, and so you combine those two, and you get something like basically the modern uh, social credit ESG scoring, right? So in other words, right, you have based on your biometrics, based on your not just your genetic biometrics, but your all the various biometrics that they can data mine from. Uh, a whole host of ed education technologies that range from uh, adaptive learning courseware to uh, biofeedback wearables. So if anybody's seen the, the videos in China, there's a Wall Street Journal video uh, where a company called BrainCo puts these kids up to these halos that datamines their EEGs while they're doing their their lessons. And then that puts them in a particular social score bracket, and then that determines their access as to the public square commercial services, everything from transportation, healthcare, education, workforce, housing, etc. Right. And so, you know, combining, you know, basically the eugenics and the behaviorism of chapter one and chapter two, and then putting it through this system of uh, AI data mining, you can basically put people into a caste system, right? Which is basically uh, and then would be which would be managed by this sort of corporate fascist, communitarian, communist uh, world state, which we can see exemplified in something like the public-private stakeholder capitalism of the Great Reset of the World, uh, of the world Economic Forum. So, uh, there, I mean, in many ways, there's not much in the novel that hasn't actually gotten right up to the edge. I mean, other than ectogenesis, meaning like developing babies outside of the womb, uh, I mean, other than that, there's not a whole lot in that novel that is... is that you you don't even need to think of as science fiction, anymore, right? I mean, it's a slightly different iteration, but you know, again, you know, they didn't even have the double helix discovered back then. But the idea, right? This idea of bioengineering and psychological conditioning managed by you know world government of uh, big business and and, uh, and other bureaucracies is uh, clear, clearly something that is coming to fruition. Yeah, I I, I wonder how much of all of this was um inspired and all of this generation of people like aldous huxley and the like uh, or, or were inspired by india and the writings that came out of india from western observers uh, it, within india because of course especially british because of course the the british were constantly um using uh, using Indian society. I mean, they took hold of Indian society uh, in nearly every single level by taking control of the top level and the way it was designed meant that they were in control of everything all of a sudden. And the systems was already uh, fantastic, uh, fantastically similar to British systems that they tend to put in place anyway. So you had like the ability for them to take over the entire country within a decade or more 
more um, and 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 exert their control easily. But then they studied India. I, I'm reading a lot of uh, work, not only people like you know you you read work like Rudyard Kipling, where he talks about time in India, but you talk about other people who were studying viruses. I'm looking at a guy called Reginald Farrar who was out in India during the bubonic plague uh, that was in the 1890s. And when you were talking, I thought about one book in particular that I read, and it was a book without any pictures called The Karma Sutra. Uh, I, I, I bought it. It was Richard Burton. So it was a guy who went over and basically gave, went over to India back around that time and gave his understanding of all of the different parts of Indian society. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I think they, there was a lot of people studying the caste system within India and then relating it to their own existence within the hierarchies within Britain. And it kind of like, if you look at some other societies, it is really easy to see why people think that eugenics could just be the norm because it's actually practiced in different ways all around the world. And there's already some form of uh, sort of nuance in in different countries including massive countries like india uh, so I, I sorry that was a long question but how much do you think that was influenced by india and, and people's like, in this in the same quote in, in the same quote where uh well one of the one of the quotes because there's many but in, in one of the quotes where uh all this says that basically that we're gonna we're gonna have a eugenic system and, and it's going to basically uh create uh, a caste system and he says that um that it, it will be the effect that the intellectual aristocracy will basically be a new kind of Brahmin is literally the, is the term that he uses. Right. And then in the, in the novel as well, um, you know, so they, they have a world religion. Okay. And the world religion it, it involves uh, a, basically a psychedelic ritual and communal sex and the, the psychedelic that they give them is something called Soma. And the soma, I mean, there's there's a there's a muscle relaxer called soma, but the original word can be traced back to a, a drug that's documented, I believe, the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita. And this was uh, nobody really knows exactly w what it was or what it, you know, what type of uh, uh, psychic effects that it had. Um, but that's where he gets that 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 uh, that concept from, and you know, one of the things that they through that process, right? So they all take this soma, and it's sort of an inversion on the on the, the Christian Eucharist. Uh, but basically, they they say we I, I drink to the to the annihilation of self, right, and to the greater being, right. I mean, and that's very much uh, comes out of you know the the, the Hindu idea of, of moksha, right? That uh, which is so the best analogy is that, you know, your Atman or your soul is like this shard or this fragment of the universe. Uh, and it's like, you know, your body is like this glass jar or this vessel. And through uh, meditation that you could basically turn the cup over. So your jar is sitting in the ocean of the universe and you turn the cup over and then the, the, the spark, the drop of water that is your soul sort of blends into the the universe which is god right brahma which is you know mm. the three the three different godheads brahma and uh shiva uh and i think um and so there's there's definitely a lot of um there's a lot of hindu 
mysticism that Huxley uh, uses at least uh, to, to buttress his, his idea of uh, how, how psychedelics will basically be used to uh, placate or the, the, the populace, right? And he's also the guy, by the way, that, you know, he wrote the, he experimented quite a bit with psychedelics. He wrote the book, uh, The Doors of Perception, which is a play on a, a William Blake quote, uh, but it's also where the, the band, The Doors, got the title for their, uh, for their band. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking more about it lately because, you know, I, another thing is promoted quite a bit in uh, the, the realm of what's called social emotional learning. <laughs> Uh, there's a whole, they, they like to emphasize meditation for, for wellness. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking a lot more about meditation and martial arts and uh, a lot of it, you know, the controlling of the breath is to manage your, your adrenaline and your, your, your emotions when you're in, you know, a combat scenario, right? Because one of the things for anybody that's competed before you'll, you'll know that you know you, if, if you can spar 10 rounds uh doesn't mean you can you can do a, a five five round in, in an actual or a five minute round in an actual fight because what happens is the adrenaline kicks you up and <clears throat> i remember my first fight people kept telling me like you're not running enough you're not doing enough cardio and i'm thinking like well, i feel good when i'm sparring yeah but your adrenaline isn't that high up right and so the first fight i had uh, was was miserable because I pretty much ran out. Of, I won. I won. I won a unanimous decision. It's funny because like I thought I was getting beat up the whole time because I was so out of gas. So when I, I'm like the, the fight's over and they raise me, they say my name and I go ah. <laughs> I like look up. I won. I won. Um, but it was it was an experience because you know I didn't realize uh, you know what your mind does in that, in that situation. So. Some of that is, you know, you can you can prevent that by, you know, have a, a very large gas tank in terms of your cardio. But another thing that the the you know with the especially in the East that they learned was well, you can actually control a lot of that with your breathing because it's not just that right the adrenaline starts to you know dump you full of epinephrine and everything, but you know you start to you know the, the breath everything gets worked up. So if you can you can sort of right detach detach from what's happening. And just sort of let things happen. Let your let your training sort of take over. Let your reflexes take over. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was there was you know there was a more of a, a, a more sinister uh, application, and that was that you know if you were like a samurai back in the day and you're slicing people up all the time, right? Like you know just like anybody that has to go to war, a lot of trauma that happens from that, right? So you gotta go. Oh, and you know, you know, you have to think about you have to write the component or power that's in faith. I mean, you know, the, the act of you know basically slaughtering people had this traumatic effect on people. So, you know, when you hear a lot of the Zen you know masters say stuff like, "I don't cut," you know, the the, the cut, the the sword does the cutting; it cuts itself, right? And this, you sort of detach yourself from the act. And some of that you can think of it as it's it's a, it's sort of the higher level of um, of application, right? Like no mindedness, right? You know, some of the best techniques are when, you know, it's like, it just sort of happens. You're like, whoa, that, you know, you're sparring. That was, that was good, man. What, what'd you do there? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. You know. Maybe you think back, oh, well, you did this and then, oh, and then I did that because the body takes over, right? But the other part of that is that if you, you can detach yourself from the act, 
right? That can help you to, that can, that can sort of uh, create the necessary cognitive dissonance to keep, right, going to, going to war, right? So if you, if you apply that to like, right, you're in this school and they're pumping your head full of this crazy woke brainwashing stuff, right? And you start to have this cognitive dissonance, right? And you're constantly being monitored by all these devices. And so you're con right? You're going to be constantly on edge. You're going to be constantly off kilter. You're going to be constantly confused, right? Knowing that you, that you have, have to follow these orders in order to get your social credit score to a certain uh, level. That the, that the meditation apps, which come along with the wearables, right? So you'll basically put a, something like a heart math wearable on and then you'll do your breathing meditation. So and get yourself in what they call heart coherence. And that can basically put you in sort of a, you know, a detached state that sort of gives you, gives you, gives you some psychological or, or, or neurological respite from the constant destabilization, confusion, and data mining, right? So, I mean, again, right, this idea of, of, of de-individuation, you know, through, uh, for the sake of blending with, the collective, but for, for someone like Huxley this and, you know, beautiful. Swab, yeah, well, it won't be, you know, it's not going to be, you know, to attain some higher state collective, right, with the, with the public, private, communitarian collective, right? Yeah, but I, I, as you were speaking there, every single thing you've been saying for the past, uh, since we were talking about Aldous Huxley and throughout that, um, I I know that we've been moving towards talking about um, uh, ba Babs, <laughs> Barbara, and transhumanism, and and we we I I mean she's such an interesting figure, um, and what you were saying there, you know, the preparation. And using Indian philosophy in the same way, using loads of different ways to detach us from our own individuality. It, there is nothing that's so emblematic of that than late stage transhumanist policy. <laughs> we could say I don't. I, I. It feels funny to say it like that because it's so extreme. What what some people envision in the future. And these people, of course, are the next generation. That she is someone who's the next generation um, from Aldous Huxley. So, give us a little bit of uh, a rundown on her for the people who don't know who she is. Yeah, so Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, very influential in the, the New Age movement. Um, she uh, ran for was was a promoted to be a candidate for vice president, uh, Walter Mondale's vice president when he ran against Reagan. Um, she comes from very wealthy family, the Marx Toys fortune, she's heir to the Marx Toys fortune. Uh, Louis Marx, her father, was buddies with um, J. Edgar Hoover and uh, President Eisenhower. She met with Eisenhower at one day, at one point, and, uh, you know, asked him, you know, all this technology that we're sort of developing is, is like the post-nuclear era. Like, what, what, what good can we do with it? And she says he didn't give him a very good answer. So then it became sort of her life's journey to figure out how to use uh, technological evolution towards you know the betterment of the species instead of you know sort of like nuclear annihilation. And so for her, um, those technologies basically 
takes take the form of um, what become these, these various transhumanists, you know, everything from the wearables to the implantables. Um, and she thought that this would be the way to um, prevent not just nuclear holocaust, but also uh, environmental catastrophe, the malfeasing catastrophe. So she was similar to her Khan in that way. And I, and I think, pretty sure, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, that Herman Kahn well, was also a member of the World Future Society, which was founded mm -hmm. by Marvel Marx Hubbard. And so what you had was a, there was a the futurists, uh, they agreed largely with people like Aurelio Pesci, and Barbara Marx Hubbard did speak with Aurelio Pesci. She also uh, was connected to uh, Maurice Strong and Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Maurice Strong was the guy that set up the, the United Nations environment. Massively important yeah for people yeah. who don't know who Maurice Strong is go and and study Maurice yeah. Strong and then realize why we have environmentalism anyway go on sorry yeah yeah no he, and he comes out of that same period that we we started with in that 70s so it was um 72 i think that um so 72 was the year that he set up the UN uh UNCHP so it's the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment that's what uh, out of that came the uh, UNEP, United Nations Environmental Program, that's 1972. That's the same exact year that the, the Club of Rome published Limits to Growth, okay? And then 20 years later to the date was the year that they published the sequel to Limits to Growth, which is Beyond the Limits, and that's also, 92 is the exact same year that Marie Strong uh, headed up the, um, the Rio conference, uh, environmental conference for the United Nations. And that's where you get UN Agenda 21 and uh, basically the, the development goals uh, come out of that as well. And obviously when it becomes Agenda 2030, SDGs that drive the Great Reset today, um, and so Hubbard was, was connected to all these people. Strong was also part of this thing called the State of the World Forum that uh, Hubbard was also a part of. And she was, uh, that was set up by Gorbachev. Strong and Gorbachev both set up something called Earth Charter, uh, which was a combination of Gorbachev's Green Cross International and uh, Strong's Earth, uh, Earth Council or Earth Charter, it's one or the other. Um, and uh, interestingly, it was uh, the, the person that put those two together, that, uh, connected uh, Strong and Gorbachev was uh, Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, right? Who's a member of the Bilderberg group. And uh, it's, uh, I believe, I believe, uh, I think it's her father is uh, Bernhard, Prince Bernhard. He's the guy who founded the Bilderberg group. And he actually was uh, the honorary sponsor of that third annual WEF forum where uh, the Limits to Growth and the Stakeholder Capitalism Project were pitched to the World Economic Forum, so she's uh, so Hubbard was was uh, connected to that whole Malthusian crowd, but she and other futurists like Khan, they had more of an idea. They were not quite as hardcore Malthusianist in the sense that they felt like there didn't that growth did not need to be limited quite as much as somebody like Petchy. Meaning, they thought that if they could. Um, develop, you know, certain technologies, especially space technologies that could potentially bring us off world, but also other technologies like green technologies, 
or other sorts of uh, bioengineering technologies that could enable the human species to be more efficient with their consumption of natural resources and all this stuff. We could continue to grow in these ways uh, while only uh, curtailing uh, human population. And, and yeah, for, for, for people who want want to want to read up on this, a good way to, to see the change is, first of all, to have a look at, into uh, Herman Kahn's year 2000. It was written in like 67, 68, that looked at all of the future technologies that were to come. And then his update after Aurelio Pecci and Club of Rome, and he had his spat, and they were like, oh, if we can get and mine meteorites and go to Mars, then none of the, we don't have any limits to our growth at all we were actually we could spread out all across the the universe and be all powerful <laughs> but you know he spread a much more optimistic and he um uh, a tone then in the mid 70s and to update his year 2000 he created the next 200 years he wrote the next 200 years so for people who want to read and see sort of like that sort of pro um I don't know, neo-Malfusian, but positive sort of neo-Malfusian sort of perspective during that period. That's a really good, like, two documents to, to have a look at to see how they're juxtaposed. Um, it's a really interesting time. So anyway, Barbara Marks, how about these guys? Go, go, I hope I didn't yeah. interrupt you too much there. No, no, you're good, you're good. Yeah, and then, um, so that was, you know, and then so, so she, uh, for her, this, this futurist project to... Um, sort of avert Malthusian catastrophe uh, was not just a transhumanist project, but for her, it's like it's it's what she calls conscious evolution. For her, it's basic. There's a spiritual component to it, right? And so she mm -hmm. borrows this idea of uh, noetic evolution, or, or this idea of the noosphere from uh, this Jesuit priest who was also a eugenicist. His name was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, um, and he basically had this idea that. Uh, uh, there was a noosphere, right? And the, the term noosphere comes from the root noose, and noose was uh, Anaxagoras' idea. He was a pre-Socratic philosopher. That, you know, the pre-Socratics all had different ideas about what was the fundamental essence or the, the basic unit of, of existence of the universe. And somebody like Thales thought it was water. Other guys thought it was fire and earth and what. And then eventually you had right, more sophisticated ideas like Heraclitus, who said it was the Logos, or uh, and Anaxagoras, who said that it was uh, it was the Nous, which basically was was the mind, right, the mind of God, right, or the the, the intellect of the universe, and so uh, the Noosphere. Is everything. that is that kind of like does that come from? gnosticism like is that where the the term comes from because like that's of course my understanding of of basic basic gnosticism is that there's a uh, a knowing boar smoking a pipe that created the universe and the real god is behind and doesn't know it exists and etc is that kind of from that it does yeah so the, so the, <laughs> the gnostic stuff would come out later and, and they're and uh you know there's people get argue about you know what is Gnosticism? Because it's it's a broad yeah. spectrum of definitely, definitely different stuff, right? But and some of it is doesn't necessarily agree with others. So you know, your Sethians or your Valentinians, right, might not agree on certain things. But if you wanted to boil it down to the core, uh, what most of uh, Gnostic philosophies have at the core is a is a thread of Neoplatonism, 
And so the Neoplatonism is where you would get sort of a, a, a reiteration of sort of the concept of the logos in the noose. Um, and this idea of, right, that the demiurge being this lesser God that, right, basically created matter and, and imprisoned yeah, us. Yeah, that's who I was talking about, yeah, the demiurge. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, and so the, uh, so for someone like Deschardin, um, there's a process by which the noosphere, the universe come, becomes conscious of itself, or the noosphere becomes conscious of itself through our consciousness right so basically everything has a certain consciousness or intellect in this in this paradigm but uh the apex of that would be the human mind human consciousness right which has self-awareness and agency in ways that you know the rest of matter and energy doesn't and that in, in the pinnacle of our own human intellect is expressed through our ability to manipulate matter and energy through our technology so the technology becomes sort of um, the the icon or the idol of the the noosphere that's manifest and expressed mm. through the human mind, and so mm. through the development of technology, right, the noosphere comes from evolved from this sort of this permeating energy to to a conscious mind or an agency to to back into an artifact or material artifact that enhances our own human mind. Uh, and then at that point, we can sort of interface with with that technology in a way in which, right, the the, the collective noosphere through a through a collective cybernetic through a, an internet of things uh, managed by a super AI would sort of culminate in the in the final uh, apex of of noetic evolution. So so for her, right, the 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 man the evolution of technology. Technology is an extension of this, and the mer our merger with it will not will, will basically be you know humanity 2.0, right? And so for so in that regard, right, and it, and it will enable us in her theory to transcend matter and energy, not just in terms of like space travel and stuff like that, but you know, if you start thinking of stuff like um, you know VR and AR, there's a whole movement that uh, that she uh, sort of inspired or, or definitely influenced. Uh, called the hollow movement um, and that the, also is inspired by I forget the guy's first name his last name's Bohm he was a, a physicist <clears throat> and, and, and you know he had the sort of theosophical leanings himself um, but he's sort of the guy that sort of starts to popularize this idea of uh, quantum reality right and so what you what you get to is you can you know in the same way that the Gnostics wanted to break out of the physical prison, physical prison of matter and energy, uh, they would have been through more, more stuff like transcendental meditation or psychedelics or asceticism or whatever it is. But, you know, now through these technologies, we can sort of get out of this prison and into this virtual world that can be entirely of your own making and your own creation, right? So you could go into a sort of a metaverse where you could basically, you know, like do a, a Minecraft or a Roblox type of, you know, basically build your own little uh, space to live in. You could uh, be whatever you want in terms of your avatar, right? So you don't have to be, you know, I don't have to be 155 pounds, uh, you know, Polish uh, American guy, right? I could be Frosty the Snowman and tall as a skyscraper, and right. Um, and so you can basically, in that in that sense, you know, transcend this prison, and, and you know what they say is become become your own god, basically. And so, uh, so that's that's how 
you know, her idea of transhumanist evolution sort of dovetails with this this Gnostic concept. And, you know, as you mentioned, this whole idea of dissociating the human individual from his or her own consciousness, his or her own soul, uh, you know, it really, it really dovetails also with, you know, the whole trans movement in the sense that you know, this, this concept of... You, I, th that your identity is entirely subjective that that it's not that your identity is grounded in right your biology and your in the material world but rather right that your biology is somehow uh secondary or an extension of however you identify and so if you can identify as right uh, a different gender why can't you identify as a totally different creature in this avatar and you know, ultimately, what you get to is a, is a place in which your your virtual avatar or your virtual representation. Another way to say it is the data that sort of is aggregated to represent you in virtual space becomes just as real as uh, becomes just as much the core of your identity as right the physical you, right? And so, obviously, that that can that leads to basically identifying more with your virtual identity your virtual existence which d dissociates you more and more from your own human physical reality your physical identity in the real world you know human interactions yeah meta civil rights movement on its way we got something crazy happening in the world right now and it, that trans that crossover is obviously linked in in my opinion is a a, a dehumanization going on a process where we're becoming um, digital or certain uh, parts of society are deciding to go that way and they don't really haven't really i mean loads of people don't think about the path they walk they're often led down that direction and things manifest in front of them and they they tackle them one at a time so people aren't really looking at the long term they're not really thinking oh what does this mean if i have this implant or this implant or this implant well eventually it means you can be turned off really easily or you can have things blow up in your head or eventually it won't even be implants like you think it won't even be microchips it'll be fluids that you won't even know what they're doing who's in control and what's going on anymore um but it'd be a fantastic way to create um uh a, a drone society and of course i i mean the vision that that i i i've been painted of is at like the end game of a load of consciousnesses in some massive jar <laughs> really all experiencing this sort of like reality that they think is reality but all having this you know beautiful feeling of complete peace they don't have any pain anymore they don't have physical bodies they don't have all of these things so i'm not sure if physical bodies continues with, with what they want to do because what they want to do is like as soon as you've uploaded to something that is uh, much more complicated and we can't understand the technology behind yet but it will always exist i mean imagine it like an a a, a, um, a a construct that is working on really advanced ai this is possible it's possible but it means that it, there's going to be a battle someday between the 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 future that people like Barbara Marks Hubbard was envisioning and the future that we're going to actually have, you know, um, 
so how long do you think because I, I you know when when i uh, we we sat down and i already knew this i already knew this um i thought we were going to have this sort of uh conversation but i did note down a load of 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 questions just in case that i needed some sort of like you know direction here or there and of course we don't need to because everything you're saying it makes sense but it also like you know there's lots of other questions that come automatically from it and i suppose coming up to the end now um the one big question is wait what what does our certain things what does our educational system look like in 2040 or 2050 you know not 10 years down the line uh, you know there's not much going to be uh, there's going to be lots of policy incorporated into um society over the uh, up until 2030 but then things are going to start to lift off and there's going to be if this all goes as planned i, I really want to understand what you think education will look like um and what you, direction you think things like the trans movement will be going is there another movement that we haven't expected yet or we haven't seen coming yet well uh i think that you know 10 years stuff is moving fast right like 10 years might be worse than what i could think of at the rate that we're moving right uh it's funny i was uh, did an opperman i was on the opperman report once in january 2020 and he asked me something to the effect of when i was explaining how all the different technologies are going to data mine students and it's going to feed into a sort of credit database. And he says, well, how long are we looking? And I said, well, you know, the people like Kurzweil say sometime between 2030 and 2045 is going to be a singularity. So that's, that's roughly the, the date I would plan for uh, when all this stuff sort of uh, comes to fruition. Uh, but then I said, because we were also talking about the order of skull and bones and the Hegelian dialectic and, you know, uh, using cra artificial crisis creation problems, reaction solutions, uh, uh, basically, you know, create create some sort of uh, uh, catastrophe or crisis that you know, pushes people into uh, these solutions uh, more quickly. And so I said, you know, but uh, I said, but, you know, the right crisis could, could make things happen a lot quicker. And, you know, two months later was lockdowns right so um you know so so i mean i thought i had 10 years before we even got as far as we were you know when i said that that day uh but you know using the using a a rough timeline i would say that uh the end game is is so when we get to that that social credit system basically where where education begins in business or healthcare or mental health or job training or uh, any of these other uh, aspects or pillars of society with begin and end is becomes indistinguishable right it just becomes all part of the same sort of algorithm for lack of a better term right uh and that was kind of what i had surmised as i was writing the book because i started to see how you know some of these devices uh were originally going to be pitched for to help with various learning disabilities but then i'm looking at it and going well okay but that's a medical thing right so if you're talking about a medical technology or a medical policy that's going to be under hipaa it's not going to be under FERPA. FERPA hipaa is the um it's the basically the laws that regulate health healthcare privacy in, in the united states FERPA regulates uh, educational data privacy right so those are like two different two different laws two different jurisdictions so to speak 
And so I was looking at it going like, well, how? I was like, they're going to have to slowly carve away at these laws and, and rewrite them in ways, right, so, to make them all sort of work together. Well, with emergency lockdowns, they didn't have to do that. Right, they basically immediately just it's under it's all emergency, right? So uh, you know, like for me to get into the school building, you have to have a vaccination record, right? So now my healthcare status is going to determine whether or not I can get an education, which is obviously going to determine whether or not I can get a job, right? And now if you uh, you know, if you if you're a conspiracy theorist, if you don't believe in COVID, right, uh, you might be labeled a terrorist as well. So there's the criminal justice aspect, right? And so at a certain point. Uh, basically, all these technologies come into your home. The, the school building itself is going to be what's largely called a community center. So you might go there to do a lab or to do some other sort of uh, internship or something that might require you to uh, operate some some machinery, uh, you know, or, or some other face-to-face uh, -face interactions. Uh, but the bulk of your training. Your training, your education is going to be done at home on some device. You'll have a wearable on. I actually saw on Jimmy Dore uh, not too long ago. Uh, they have they're they're pitching the same technology for the workforce, meaning the, the wearables. They call it bossware, right? So your boss is going to watch and see: Are you, you know, based on your EEGs? Are you on Facebook? Are you paying attention? Are you actually doing your work? Right. So you'll be sitting at home doing your remote work, doing your remote training with your wearables on. Uh, and that'll be, you know, in real time tracking your social credit score and that'll all determine whether or not, you know, you get your health care, you get your, you know, whether or not some, a mental health counselor with a, uh, under the auspices of the police, community oriented policing knocks on your door. Um, and, and that'll be the education system. And it'll basically be a pipeline straight into uh, whatever, whatever job, whatever career pathway they've determined based on your algorithms. Um, and a, most of the, a, a large portion of the training, though, is actually going to be, uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, character training, or in other words, right? It's not so much, because most of the jobs are going to be more or less automated, right? The skills you're going to need are going to be, you know, uh, basically how to, how to operate a particular app, right? Or how, you know, which, how to know how to, which buttons to click on to make the mm -hmm. you know, algorithm run efficiently. So you don't actually need a whole lot of, uh, you know, highly skilled training. Uh, but what you do need is, you know, you need to be uh, congenial to corporate culture, which is right. In other words, you, you need to, uh, you can't, you can't hurt the company's ESG score, right? So you have to, you know, uh, use all the right pronouns and, and use all the right equity phrases and avoid your microaggressions. And so most of your training will be uh, geared towards that. Um, as far as, you know, how the, the trans thing, uh, sort of drives a, a, another agenda and I've sort of already alluded to the whole transhumanist thing, right? Because right, if you're, if there's no biological basis to your identity, there's, if there's nothing that makes you a man or a woman, then what, what's the difference between you and any other form of matter and energy, right? What's the difference between you and a microchip? What's the difference between you and a computer, right? Like what, what's, where's the line to be drawn, right? Um, uh, and so with that, you know, with the rise of these, you know, GPT style AI, the next thing we'll see is a push, not just for, you know, so we're seeing this, this expansion of rights, uh, identity-based rights, personhood rights, 
will be applied to the, the, the GPT AI, right? These various AI, right? So, so they'll be, next thing will be uh, that they are given political rights or civil rights. <clears throat> uh, and then at that point, um, you know, somebody like Musk would say there, right? Once, once the AI is sophisticated enough to give it rights, right? You'll basically have to merge with it. Uh, you'll, you know, and this is why he's building his Neuralink. Um, and, you know, it, it, what it will basically be is the way I see it is um, sort of like, I mean, that's all it really is, right? GPT, it's basically just, it's basically just a form of, of Google that can give you some form of analysis rather than just description. And so, so in some ways, it basically runs on the same type of auto population that, you know, your, your, text messages or your Gmail works on, right? So you start at one thing and it knows how to fill it in. So to merge with that type of AI would look something like, and this could be, this could be promoted as a, um, as an assistive technology for first with people with learning disabilities, right? So if you have a hard time reading, you'll have a GPT, a little social emotional learning robot. I actually did a video recently on a robot called Moxie. Uh, that is developed by uh, in partnership with Pixar and Jim Henson Studios. It's funded by several World Economic Forum uh, partners or corporations that are partners with the World Economic Forum. And it data mines your kids' facial expressions and all this and it's supposed to help them parse their emotions. Uh, but something like this, you could basically, through your wearable, um, you know, if you're having, you're trying to think of the answer to the test, right, instead of having to say, uh, Alexa or whatever your name of your AI Moxie, you know, help me and ask him the question. It'll just sort of be embedded in there, right? Mm -hmm. And so as you're thinking one thought, right, it'll it'll intrude. It'll offer you, oh, do you mean do you want to think this or do you want to think mm -hmm. that? And you know, at that point, uh, it's sort of like what you said about like, so what does this thing, what does this look like, right? Like the more you do that, at a certain point, right? The, these these the the intrusive uh, auto population into your own thoughts. Uh, at some point, right? I mean, if you can think of it like a pie, right? Maybe it's like mostly you thinking, and then this thing suggests some stuff here and there, and then maybe depending on where you're at cognitively or how much you want to rely on it, right? Maybe that pie gets smaller, right? Maybe it's half your thoughts and half of that, right? So. At some point, I, you know, and this is totally speculation here. I mean, it, I don't know how far that goes, but obviously if it goes past, you know, the 50% mark where most of the stuff that most of the thoughts that you have, most of the inner monologue that you hear is actually computer generated through a wearable, right? Like the, the very notion of consciousness itself almost becomes obsolete, right? It basically becomes sort of like us sort of an antiquarian superstition, right? And then at that point, remember that it's not just, it's not like you have an AI and I have an AI and your AI tells you things and that and my AI tells me things. That's all the same AI, right? It just it's just different devices. Right. So then what you well, so then what you're saying is then right if you have a broad enough population, right? I don't know, let's just, let's just say most of the population has one of those things. And most of the population is let is using less than fifty percent of your own self-generated thoughts, right? Like, like at at this point, you you pretty much have something like a hive mind, right? I mean, and, and I don't know that. And this is where I started to wonder. So, you know, 
when they say that they're going to become gods, I don't think they necessarily mean us. And I don't think they're going to be have, I don't think they'll be using those things the same way. I think they'll be, they'll be able to sit and look at sort of a AI supercomputer that sort of aggregates all of that. And the rest of us, it's sort of like a beehive, which they, which they always, right. I mean, you know, if you go back to some of the, the ancients that were, you know, the Romans, they, they always loved beehives for that reason, right? Because you had this, you had this queen bee and this one, right. This, this master creature and all these other little things, all they do is facilitate life around, right. This, this sort of, uh, this mother brain, right. And so you would have something, Something to that effect would be my best my best guess at what that looks like when we go that far down the pipe. But I but knowing you know knowing what I can speculate about it, I would if I was them, I would I would guess that I would not have any intention to be plugged into that. Too, right, that, that everybody yeah. else would be plugged in for the purposes of making them more compliant and subservient. Yeah, wow, so much there so much there it makes me think of um something whether and this is more trickery from them or whether this makes sense but you know a lot of our brain would the decisions we make and make the decisions be made in our brain before we've even think we have like a conscious effort to make that decision our brains already made the decision and we enter into our conscious and it's told what to think by that subconscious brain and that manifests in all different sorts of parts of life not just one or two not just in decision making but every single part of life so it asks two questions is uh or one main question which is maybe or possibly if we look at it then we're already not making the decision ourselves and that we are already already of this evolution that somewhere back down the line, something from elsewhere has populated this planet within a way that leads to us and this and this whole thing. Um, and that we are just, uh, in a sense, pre-programmed and we already respond to something that we don't have a sense of a, 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 an actual general sense of in, um, of it happening we we respond in feelings and impulses and emotions that seem to come from elsewhere so it's really interesting to wonder whether or not there's something more to all of this or it's just simply humans who are trying to head towards a future that would then make more to all of this because we're always trying to like become better and yeah like you say there's probably going to be multiple tiers to any society that these malevolent creatures create listen you've given me loads of time here and i i'm sure people are going to be just like that some of that is mind-blowing stuff it's just thinking about transhumanism thinking about the current state we're in how thing the the road we're going towards and where it leads is just it, it's the thing that i think changes brings people out of the bubble it, it, it bursts people bubble if they're willing to listen to it and i know that that you'll be in you'll find in your educational establishments or elsewhere that there's only a couple of people around who are willing to listen to it when you get up into the places of the mortarboard the owl <laughs> and and the like but but humans who want to find out more where they're going to find out 
more about your work and what you've researched uh where can people find you school world order info has got all my social media it's got my twitter and my uh my youtube and my uh bit shoot you know I don't produce as much as I'd like to these days. Actually, it's just, you know, busier and busier. And as I mentioned, I'm an adjunct, not my day job. But School World Order is the main is the main hub. Like I said you can get uh, everything there. There's links to my book. So that's the main place to go. Yeah, School World Order, School World Order info. And there's going to, all of these things are going to be in the description. Um, God, John, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, we, we're going to talk loads throughout our life, hopefully, and we're going to have discussions about all of these things, and maybe we'll get even get to some sort of resolution one day. But I know that um, we've had conversations before uh, in the past, privately, behind closed doors, about maybe being able to talk to the other side eventually about this you know because there is an, an another side to this story isn't there and we 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 can make our we can we can um come to our assumptions of why we think people are going towards this sort of transhumanist future but until we bring those other people into the conversation we're not going to really know why that manifests or whether or not they're right or whether or not we're right or wrong or who's right or whatever anyway I really thank you for your time um, and and keep up the good work. We're going to speak soon, I'm sure. Right on, man. Glad to be here.